Dr. Eric Cobb is here to talk about Z Health Education's Breathing Gym. What's up, everybody? My name is John Campioni, and this is the Rock Tape Podcast. What's up, everybody? Thank you so much for downloading the Rock Tape Podcast. I'm John. This week, what we've got for you is a great conversation with Dr. Eric Cobb. Dr. Cobb is the founder of Z Health Education. If you know anything about Z Health, you know that they have a very neurocentric approach to movement and rehabilitation. What we talk about today is their breathing gym. So there's a lot of really cool science coming out about breath and breathing mechanics and how it affects the brain, how it affects the entire body. And that is what we talked to Dr. Cobb about today. It's a pretty fascinating conversation and a lot of takeaways for you. I hope you enjoy it. And without any further ado, let's get to our conversation with Dr. Cobb. Let's get into it. So I am here with Dr. Eric Cobb, the founder of Z Health. Eric, how are you, man? I'm doing very well. Thank you, sir. It's good to see you. It's good to have you. Uh, we haven't been able to see each other for a while for obvious reasons, but um, <laughs> got the chance to see you uh, you know, last year and then also virtually got to kind of see a lot of the, the Z Health stuff that is, has come out. You know, mm-hmm. uh, It's coursework I talk about all the time, so I don't want to you know, keep beating that dead horse because uh, I highly recommend it to everybody uh, that wants to get more of that neurocentric approach. And one of the biggest reasons I, I wanted to have you on today was to take that neurocentric approach and then address one of the newer courses that you have, which is the breathing gym. And I think mm-hmm. this is pretty fascinating because whether it was you know kismet or just the trends that we see within the healthcare field, breathing has become extreme. I hate to say trendy because I think it devalues it sometimes using that language, but that's the best term I can think of. Tr- mm-hmm. uh, breathing has become quite a, a, a welcome trend uh, in rehab. So why do you think breathing has become so important, which is a silly <laughs> thing to say because it's breathing, um, but why do you think breathing has become so important and what kind of um, lit the spark for starting and developing Breathing Gym? Uh, all great questions. So number one, I think breathing has become quite trendy at this. And I actually, I like that term because it's very true. Uh, I think primarily what's driving it is really social media and just obviously there's so much more opportunity to get good information out to larger audiences. Um, so I think what we've seen particularly over the last decade or so is we've seen a lot more interest in uh, like the Buteco method out of Russia. Wim Hof has obviously developed this extremely large following. There's books out now. Uh, And I think what's happened in both those cases, or at least to some extent, is that people who already came from traditions that had extensive breathing practices are feeling like, okay, I, I feel like there's maybe some justification to this stuff that I've been doing that I know makes me feel better. So I think it's kind of this perfect storm of a lot more availability for people as well as some growing scientific interest. And that's also been one of the things I found interesting. uh, And that's part of what helped, I think, push me to create the breathing gym that we've just completed because I have been using breath work for about 25 to 30 years. Um, And most of that in in that period of time was very experiential. I come from a martial arts background. 
Uh, we did a ton of different breath work in there. Um, and again, I found it very helpful for myself. And then over the years, I was exposed to a wide variety of techniques. And some of them are really powerful for me personally. So I tried to include them in my teaching. And subsequent to that, I spent a lot of time trying to look into the research. What's fascinating is that after thousands upon thousands of years and all these historical traditions of people using breathing for a variety of different issues, when you try to dig into the research environment, we really only started looking at voluntary control of respiration in any depth about five years ago. Mm. So it is a, it's an essence of an emerging field. It's, it's really brand new in terms of our understanding at a neuroscientific level, particularly of what voluntary respiration practices do in the brain. There's a lot more research on brainstem control, involuntary uh, respiration. So I think it's a it's an exciting time as you go forward to go, okay, what are we going to figure out about this stuff? Yeah, and there's a lot out there right now. The the three that come to mind are the ones that I've most recently <clears throat> read is Conscious Breathing, uh, Anders Olsen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Patrick McCown is The Oxygen Advantage. And right. then the more newer, and I would argue maybe more po- uh, mainstream, is James Nestor's uh, Breathing. Breathe. Or is yeah. it just breathe? Breathe, yeah. Breathe, yeah. So you're seeing a lot more of that presentation of the research coming out. And, mm-hmm. you know, I try to take a layperson's perspective with this too, because when I was in, when, when I started in practice, breathing I knew was important, but it was always one of those little things that was like, how do I explain that a person needs to breathe correctly? You know, like as a new right. practitioner, it's <laughs> difficult sometimes to get value into the things that you're doing with patients. So right. like, m- I think that's, that's the question to start with here is how impactful is breathing? Why is it important to train breath or even, even assess and then train breath? Mm-hmm. So I guess my, my basic answer on breathing always is it's just like any other tool. For some people, it's going to be tremendously effective uh, in terms of pain reduction. Maybe it'll improve movement, uh, spinal mobility, et cetera. For other people who have probably less dysfunctional breathing patterns, it's probably going to be a tool that is of lower use. So, you know, the neurocentric approach that we've been advocating on for so many years really revolves around what I just call basic show and tell, just like whenever you were a kid. You test something, you do something, you retest. Uh, The easiest way I've ever found to get clients to buy into any tool, whether that's foot mobility drill, whether that's a strengthening drill, whether it's a vision drill or breathing drill, is to show them changes in their own body. Um, The issue that we run into with breathing, obviously, is that it is one of our most habitual patterned um, uh, really systems that we have. Uh, And as a result of that, one of the challenges in a clinical environment is can you demonstrate efficacy in a very short term? Uh, because we know it's going to take them time. They're going to have to do awareness work. They're going to have to pay attention to their breathing. They're going to have to do the exercises. So whenever I do any kind of respiratory work with someone, it's, hey, can I show them with two or three different or two or three repetitions of whatever we're testing that it makes a noticeable difference? That's about the only way I've found to get really, really get people unless they are already oriented toward improving their health and function. That's about the only way I've ever been able to get them to be compliant. Do you ever get pushback sometimes where people are like, why are you like, I know how to breathe. You know, I've been doing, I've been literally doing this my whole life. (laughs) I have gotten pushback. Yeah, many times. And that's why I typically will link breathing to their problem. I rarely actually teach breathing for breathing's sake. Hmm. Um, That's one of the, you know, if you have a, if you have a movement practice, 
and people are there and they're, they're working out with you or training with you and they're interested in improving movement practice, I think it's fairly easy to get people to buy into some level of respiratory work. Mm-hmm. But if someone's there, like I said, complaining of low back pain or shoulder pain or neck pain, and you're trying to use some kind of uh, respiratory tool with them, um, it's the, the challenge, obviously, exactly what you said is that they go, look, I, I don't need to pay, pay attention to my breathing. My problem's right here. So you have to make that, that instantaneous connection for them. So like, what is a way that you, you typically describe the the benefit? Like if you, if you, if I was like, don't touch me until you tell me exactly Mm -hmm. what you're doing, you know, I don't want to do exercises, uh, you know, consultation kind of things. How can you explain Mm -hmm. very simply to someone why doing some of these breathing drills are going to be very effective for the condition before you even show them? Because that's ultimately where you're going to get the biggest bang. Yeah. Great question. Normally, whenever I have this, any kind of conversation like this with a client, I go, listen, uh, hopefully we've already established the idea that we're going to be looking at brain function uh, because, you know, your shoulder hurts because it's not moving well. Your brain controls the movement of your shoulder. Pretty simple. In order for your brain to be functional, it needs two primary things. It needs fuel and it needs activation. So the primary way that we fuel you is through breathing. That is actually like that's my condensed 10 second explanation often for people to say some of your exercises will not work well if your breathing is dysregulated your your job my job is just going to be harder if we're not able to fuel you appropriately and uh, that then ties into some of the other some of the exercises and drills that we teach that makes a lot of sense for someone coming in you know uh because like i've said before it's just the idea of like well you know why how does that affect you know my problem this hurts i think we've mm-hmm. just been conditioned for patients a lot of times to understand like fix that pain i'm better than after that and it's just so right. much more than that so one of the things that i've noticed too a lot of the research comes out especially in the mainstream with a lot of the books there there is a a, a big approach on the stimulation of the parasympathetic nervous system you know something in right. rock tape we talk a lot about is down regulation so down regulating that parasympathetic nervous system what i found interesting with the breathing gym is you do address the fact that we could go the opposite direction and then start to have the discussion about balance. But um, let's talk a little bit more about the importance of like downregulating the system, because I think most mm-hmm. people are in that higher sympathetic state. This is where, or at least it's associated with most of their problems. So, you know, when we're talking about breathing for calming the system, mm-hmm. what's our starting point? Where do we go with that? So, they, there are a variety of different ways to, to approach calming or, or lowering sympathetic tone, if you want to call it that. Um, I always tell our students, at least, that you actually need to have a background in, okay, what drives increased sympathetic tone from a structural perspective? Meaning, if we look at the brain, where does the sympathetic nervous system live? Where does it, you know, where is the drive initiated? What calms it down? Uh, so, normally, the, the, the hyper-simplified version of this is you have to know about the brainstem. The brainstem has mesencephalon or midbrain on top, the pons and the medulla. When you look at the sympathetic nervous system, upregulation or increased sympathetic tone is usually driven by activity in the top of the brainstem, the midbrain. We then are able to put the brakes on the sympathetic nervous system via pontine and medullary activity or activation. So whenever we talk about breathing approaches to downregulate sympathetic tone, we're typically trying to focus on things that would stimulate more pontine or medullary activity. That's, yeah, like I said, gross simplifications, but they're useful ones whenever you're trying to figure out what to do with someone. Yeah. Um, 
if you look into the research, the this is actually very, very clear at this point, is one of the very first and most predictable tools we have for uh, reducing sympathetic tone and particularly helping with pain is just very slow controlled breathing, 5.5 to six cycles per minute. Uh, and we wanna use a prolonged exhalation. When you combine those two together, again, across every research study that I can find, those have been the most consistent predictors of, okay, we're gonna see an improvement in HRV, uh, we're going to see uh, decreased sympathetic tone, and usually we'll see reductions in pain as well. And the thing that I really like about that is it is incredibly easy to teach with a metronome or a timer. You teach your patient or client, listen, this, you're going to do a two-second inhale, you're going to hold for two, you're going to exhale for four, you're going to hold for two, and you're going to repeat that for 10 minutes. And you just you can just leave it at that. Um, I actually often will have them try to use that technique while we're doing other stuff with them. Uh, and if they, you know, even in a training environment, you can actually uh, have them kind of self-assess after two or three minutes of exercise while trying to maintain that breathing pattern. Do you feel better? And often they'll go, well, yeah, it's weird. I feel even more relaxed. Yeah. Um, so if you have someone on the table and you're doing a lot of soft tissue work on them, have them use that breathing pattern. You may actually, as a hands-on practitioner, you may notice tone changes in tissue. Uh, and you may, they may also find whatever you're doing more tolerable. So that is the, that's really kind of the number one thing I have people focus on in the beginning. From there, uh, as I went into in breathing gym, there's some other approaches that you can use that we speculate uh, based off what we know about uh, the breathing apparatus uh, can also have impacts on pontine and medullary function that should also play a role in reducing sympathetic tone. So for, you know, anybody who maybe hasn't delved into some of the literature that's out there, is there an optimal sequence of inhale to exhale to hold and stuff like that? Because I think a lot of people have heard of box breathing, and I think traditionally yeah. it's been taught four by fours. But, yeah. you know, is there, do we have the numbers that tell us like, nope, inhale this, exhale this, et cetera? It's more about ratios. Um, but there is, well, there's really only one or two studies on this that actually seem to show a benefit. And right now we're very early on the research, but the prolonged exhale seems to be more effective for sympathetic tone reduction and pain relief. So you normally want at least a one to two, maybe a one to three, or even one to four exhalation to inhalation or inhalation exhalation ratio. So I normally have our athletes over time work on a two to three second full inhale, working up to maybe a 12 uh, to 15 second exhale. Mm -hmm. The pauses after inhalation and exhalation in general, I tell people, you just want them to feel natural and comfortable. Um, we have to be a little bit more careful with some people when we do continuous breathing. So if we do two seconds in immediately to four seconds out, two seconds in four seconds out without a natural inspiratory or expiratory pause, people can start to get panicky from that. Um, and they can also, depending on their ratios and how much they're exhaling, they can start to hyperventilate. So I always recommend in the beginning, putting those pauses in and just letting them be comfortable. But in terms of the ratio, Again, the research is pointing toward longer exhalations, probably being more uh, functional and appropriate for tone manipulation or for at least reducing sympathetic tone. And there's also a biochemical uh, effect there as well, too, is uh, Correct. 
they talk a lot about the uh, the Bohr effect, where you mm-hmm. know if there is if there's a lack of carbon dioxide within the system, we actually saturate the the body with oxygen, but it it actually cannot allow oxygen to be offloaded from the hemoglobin. It's very very right. uh, big simplification of it, but this is such a weird thing that I <laughs> one of those things where it's like I should have known this, but now I've learned it. Is like we have enough oxygen we're actually losing carbon dioxide and everybody would be like, but carbon dioxide is bad. We're supposed to get rid of it. But we're actually seeing studies <laughs> that show hyperventilation is what's leading to a lot of the musculoskeletal, at least there's a, a cascade of events that can occur Correct. there. So Correct. let's get into that. Let's talk about the biochemical perspective. <laughs> Cause I think this is such a weird juxtaposition for a lot of people when they look into it. It really is. And, and I, I'm kind of like you, I, I always think back on my early education and, and think, I should have known this, uh, but really this concept of O2 CO2 manipulation, I, I personally um, uh, direct most people to Buteco method or Patrick McCallum's work who who's popularized Buteco's work in the English language. Um, and what's interesting is if you dig into the kind of the harder research around the Buteco method, his original theories about we need to increase CO2 levels to a certain extent, and we can do that based off breathing, haven't really proven out in in uh, the actual physiology. But remember, he was developing this system in the 1950s. We have more modern technology to look at. The, mm-hmm. But the end point that I always try to make with people is even if his original assertions on the physiology side were incorrect, just like the gate control pain theory was in part incorrect, it's still a very useful concept. Yeah. So whenever we dig into this, the the simplified version I'm always trying to get across to students and, and clients is we need kind of optimized balance, right? Most of us grow up exactly thinking what you said, which is oxygen good, CO2 bad. The more CO2 we get out, the better off we'll be. And that's completely wrong uh, because the CO2 levels in the body are going to be the primary drivers for changes in pH levels. So the pH level is what drives our basic respiratory systems. So your involuntary respiratory systems are driven by um, different activations in different areas in the pons and the medulla primarily. And those changes in respiratory rate, et cetera, are driven by changes in pH and pH is controlled by CO2. So whenever we put someone into a breathing pattern uh, maybe, or they put themselves into it. They're at work, they're stressed out, their shoulders are getting tighter, they're leaning forward trying to read this and have this 9,000 Zoom call a day and they're starting to breathe too much. The challenge that we run into with hyperventilation is we're actually blowing off too much CO2. It's not that we are under oxygenated, we're under CO2 and then we have a whole host of things that can occur from that. Obviously you mentioned musculoskeletal issues. If you go in and look at the, the list of hyperventilation disorder symptoms there it's enormous yeah. uh, but on a very practical side what i always try to remind people who are brain based is that when we move into a hyperventilated state we are causing significant cerebral blood flow constriction so you can look at br- uh, brain imaging of people who are breathing oxygen b- versus breathing co2 and co2 causes really rapid dilation of blood flow or cerebrovascular blood flow. So um, one of the issues, as I was mentioning, is I'm trying to work with your brain, right? I'm trying to create activations and stimulations in different areas, trying to help you get out of pain or move differently. I need your brain to be supported by good blood flow. When you have low CO2 levels, that is going to be significantly challenged. 
so that's one of the kind of standard places that I like to start um, in helping people understand why this biochemical manipulation, particularly with the shorter inhale, the longer exhale, but basically just reducing breathing volume uh, as a whole, generally we'll see small increases in CO2 levels. What do you think about, uh, it's been mentioned in, in, in some text that uh, the, the local tissue perfusion of CO2 by you, the use of like, um, basically like bath bombs, like the, some baking soda based um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, substance, you, like soaking your feet, for instance, you can help with that on a very local level, albeit it's, mm -hmm. it's through the skin. Yes, respiratory is going to be involved with that because you're always breathing. But, you yeah. know, how much is there to that uh, using it on a very local level with a method like that? Um, my honest answer is I don't know for sure. I mean, I've looked into some of the research and it's very, I, I, I still personally find it very hard to interpret um, yeah. what's happening. You know, is it, is it, uh, is it a cool idea or is it worth spending time on? Uh, in many cases, that's, I think, going to come down to the, to doing some individual testing. Yeah. Um, the, you know, we have some transdermal substances that seem to increase local metabolic rate, uh, you know, transdermal ma magnesium, maybe, sure. um, baking soda, maybe. So we know that if we're changing tissue perfusion, we are going to get some changes in oxygenation, uh, in that area. So like I said, I, it's, it's not something I spend a lot of time on simply sure. because right now it's a little hard for me to interpret exactly what, what we're seeing. Yeah. I always thought that was curious when I read that. I actually use it as an excuse to justify the amount of uh, seltzer water that I drink. It's like, <laughs> oh, I lecture for a living, so I'm hyperventilating. I'm, you know, just replacing that CO2. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned balance before, and, and I, I love that. That always needs to be mentioned too, because I think we get conditioned to the idea of like, it's one or the other. And I think now with a lot of the conditions that we see, we talk about, oh, sympathetic uh, tone being increased in most people. We got to bring it down. We got to really stimulate that parasympathetic, but it's balance really. And as you present it in breathing, Jim, there are situations where you might actually want to upregulate the system or, or, or improve sympathetic tone for the purposes of trying to uh, uh, get ready for uh, activities, things like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah. um, let's talk about some, you know, different exercises, you know, what would be okay. like a more of a calming exercise versus kind of that, I'll call it an upregulatory, like, uh, like a psych up exercise, I guess you, we sure. can refer to it as. Sure. So yeah, this is actually a really interesting, um, this is a very interesting topic for me because I, again, my progression through this whole breathing topic is, was very much slanted toward the pain relief, reduced sympathetic tone side of things for a long time. Right. Uh, because just like oxygen and CO2, we've been taught for the most part as practitioners, sympathetic bad, parasympathetic good, fight or flight, rest and digest. Obviously we want everyone resting and digesting. Well, no, the fact <laughs> is that uh, we're looking for an appropriate balance for the environmental context always. <laughs> um, and what was uh, one of the real drivers for this that I found super interesting was when uh, Wim Hof, it kind of exploded onto the scene. There was a lot of skepticism because if you've looked into his method, you know, it's very much trans uh, transition from some traditional yoga practices, fire breathing, kind of rapid breathing, intentional hyperventilation. Mm -hmm. um, there's holotropic breath work. There's a lot of, a lot of systems out there that have tried to get people to overbreathe on purpose. Right. So coming from my original perspective of let's calm people down, uh, I spent a lot of time trying to understand why this would, you know, why people were, were getting such benefits from it. 
So if you actually dig into like WIMS method, there are some pretty cool case studies that they've done within hospitals. Uh, and you can actually, uh, you can find the studies online and they have videos of WIMS students in hospital being injected with, you know, some flu bug and they're going through breathing activities uh, based on hyperventilation and then long breath holds. And that's one of the things people tend to forget about. It's not just the rapid breathing, it's the, the long breath holds that are associated. But in one of the most current, most current pieces that was written, the doctors found just a tremendous upregulation of their sympathetic nervous system. And they felt like the sympathetic nervous system increased drive from the breathing activities in part led to this upregulation of the immune system, which is one of the reasons they were able to fight off uh, this, you know, artificially injected bug that they were using on them. And if you haven't read about any of that, it's kind of cool. You can go check it out. Uh, and so I know that from also working with a lot of, uh, particularly concussed individuals over time, that there were instances where whenever we use breathing patterns to try to increase sympathetic tone, we saw much better results. Uh, so whenever we start to look at this, we have to go, okay, well, what's going to drive increased sympathetic tone? We're back to that brainstem idea, right? Midbrain, pons medulla. We said the midbrain, the very top generally is where sympathetic nervous system drive for the rest of the body is going to uh, descend via uh, the brainstem. So then the question became neurologically, do we have any idea about the midbrain's role in breathing? Because traditionally, whenever we do brain studies, like for years, I've read about the pons medulla, pons medulla. Yeah. But if you look again, from a network perspective, it's always kind of strange to think it's only these two areas. Mm -hmm. So now uh, in the last five to 10 years, we've learned a lot more about the midbrain. And there's a particular area in there called the periaqueductal gray. And that area of the brainstem is very responsive to breath holds and being the threat of being out of breath. Just say it that way. So air hunger, breath holding, um, these are drivers for movement, right? From a kind of a base, basic locomotive perspective. Uh, whenever we look at the gait cycle, we have this Thing we know it's called the mesencephalic locomotor region. So it should make sense to us from, a, I think, kind of an evolutionary perspective from a movement that being unable to breathe should drive sympathetic response. It should drive a desire to move, a desire to change your context so that uh, you don't die. So whenever we start to look into the, uh, like I said, midbrain function, it's actually quite simple. If you want to increase sympathetic tone, you're trying to prep someone for activity, you have a couple different uh, possibilities. We have one type of drill that we've been doing for about 15, 20 years now, just called air hunger drills. Really simple, take a breath in, blow all your air out, hold it out, and then you exercise, right? Do some kind of body weight movement uh, until you feel a really strong need to breathe. And then you stop, I say you have one to three breaths to control yourself, and then we'll do it again. Usually two to three repetitions of that, you feel quite amped up. Um, so that's, that's one or two. One for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I do. I've tried those out and I use them accordingly, but man, yeah, it blows you up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's one kind of really easy way to do it. As I said, another, if you don't like the movement aspect of it, another simpler way, a less intense way is just uh, prolonged breath holding. Okay. Um, both of those seem to trigger mesencephalic activity, which we would anticipate triggering and in increased sympathetic activity. Could the longer uh, exhale, it's weird to say it like this, but you see, you mentioned the sympathetic tone, but that also is used for parasympathetic tone as well too. So 
maybe that's a good example of just how everything is connected in this crossing pattern. But the ex extension of the exhalation is also is calming, but also can be considered an air hunger drill. Yeah, because the basically we always tell people that the reason that we have people do the long exhale, because if you're thinking from an O2 CO2 balance, it would make more sense to do an air hunger drill after an inhale. Oh, but the reason yeah, yeah. the reason that we don't do that is particularly because we're, we're prepping someone for activity and I'm having you do body weight squats and you do it on a full inhale, you might do 40 or 50 before you actually feel a really strong need to breathe. Right. So we do it on the full exhale so that we get you down to maybe, you know, eight to 10 squats before you really start to get that. Oh, I got to get a breath because really we're not trying to, we're trying to target that midbrain response. Uh, so yeah. it's a faster way to achieve it. Uh, and you can do it either direction. And there's also that uh, increase in, in, in CO2 as you metabolize, mm -hmm. you've given it all off and then That's you're building more up as you exercise too, right? That's why we're doing the movement. Yeah. We want to increase yeah. metabolic energy production because that's going to increase CO2 production. This is just very, very fascinating when you bring the <laughs> neuro into it. I mean, you know, you know how I am. I, I love the neuro side of it. So it is extremely fascinating just to, to kind of understand that. But those air hunger drills, yeah, they're, they are no joke. And, you know, <laughs> be, being in the teaching world that I am with rehab, you know, I, the, the question of sets and reps always comes up. And it's so funny when you mm -hmm. use exceptions like that, like how many reps this? Two, you're right. not going to get more than that <laughs> two times yep. and Take then it chill out, yeah. right? So um, another big component, is, I think, is the mechanics of it. And correct me if I'm wrong, you delve a lot into the mechanics of breathing assessment in breathing gym, but also in T-phase, if, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah. In our curriculum, we actually have two courses that are... So T-phase is kind of our introduction to mechanics and biochemistry. And then we have another course, an advanced course in our curriculum, it's called Stamina. Uh, which is where we, it's, it's a, yeah, you know, 30 plus hour course and about 80% of it is breathing mm -hmm. um, where we delve, delve very deeply into the mechanics and the neurology and kind of how our perspective on how all that works together. Would you say that breathing gym is kind of a taste of something like stamina or are they standalone? Yeah, no, it's, it's a taste. I, you know, I, one of my big problems, obviously I've always told people this is whenever I'm making a product, I'm, I always struggle with this blend of, I primarily spend most of my time coaching coaches and doctors and therapists, but I'm also trying to make something that an, an interested general user can also uh, find value in. So this particular product is, is definitely slanted more toward the, um, the professional because I wanted people to understand a little bit more about the reasoning behind uh, why all these different breathing drills I think are important. Uh, but we also spend quite a bit of time saying, you know, if you're doing this on your own, here's how you're going to test yourself. Um, here's how you want to apply it. So it's, it's, a, it's a taste of our T phase, a taste of our stamina course, uh, for sure. Yeah, which is uh, some cool stuff, T phase, you know, delving into a lot of the therapy. So you get into, as, as with breathing, Jim, you get into the diaphragm stretches, which I always mm -hmm. think are so much fun. Um, uh, I'll just give everyone a taste of this. Go check out the, the, the breathing gym yourself. But the, the phrase exhale until you feel like you're going to die comes up um, <laughs> for, for diaphragm stretches, which I always thought was a, a fun description for that too. Um, yeah. Another interesting component that, that I read about, and actually um, my wife, Christina, who you know, uh, is specializes in rehab, but also nutrition. So in mm -hmm. a lot of her nutrition reading, 
um, she saw this and I saw this also from the breathing side is chewing. Chewing is actually be, become a, a huge factor in respiratory dysfunction, maxillofacial issues as well too. Um, what can a practitioner do as far as, you know, this would probably be more history, subjective information in discussing how, how someone's poor chewing can affect their, their breathing and how we can work on that, you know, from a clinical perspective. Yeah. Um, it's a great question. And I, I, I wish it was one that I had an excellent answer to because it's sure. something I've, I've dealt with for years with people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I, it's fairly easy to explain. I think at some level, um, most people that are experiencing some degree of breathing dysfunction, if you ask them, have you ever paid attention to how you feel after you eat? And I'll yes. say, yeah, I feel, I feel a little bloated, right? I feel, and then I'll ask them, all right, when your stomach feels like it's bloated or you feel a little discomfort, how easy is it to breathe? And they'll go, oh, if I actually think about it, I feel some discomfort. It feels tight. It feels uncomfortable. Um, that usually then leads into this you know, conversation about you probably were like me raised by a pack of wolves and you just prefer to swallow after two bites and get onto the next meal. Um, the or you issue, had five other obviously. wolves that were trying to get you food and you had to <laughs> yeah, eat very fast. Fine. That's how I grew up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so our, you know, our fast eaters, obviously they don't chew enough as a result of that. It, we're going to have significant impacts on digestion. So whenever, or particularly when I say digestion right now, I'm, I'm focusing more on what's happening with the stomach itself, because whenever we get that strong stretch in the stomach, uh, typically by nature, we're going to have some inhibition of the diaphragm. It's not going to want to descend against this already full feeling sack. So it's, yeah, I think it's easy to explain to them. The problem that you run into obviously is this is an incredibly ingrained habitual pattern. So now you have to go into the behavioral coaching side, uh, figure out, is this something they're even interested in trying? Uh, normally whenever I do any intervention with people about, Hey, let's work on chewing a little bit. I'll say, uh, I'm a big believer in starting small. So this week, just choose one meal uh, and let's actually make it a smaller meal. So if your typical day is I get up, I eat a bagel, whatever. All right. On Tuesday morning, let's start with a bagel. And what I want you to do is count it. And then we talk about the kind of well-known behavioral things of one fast way to get people to chew a little bit longer is just to ask them to put whatever they're eating down or put their utensils down between each bite. This is you know, it's, it's been shown over and over that that will actually force people to slow down. Um, and then it's just about compliance. Thinking about myself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Once you pick the burger up, it never gets put back down. Right. Well, and Uh, if I could play devil's advocate, you know, a good taco (laughs) should never be put down because it could come out and, you know, this is a problem. It really is a problem. (laughs) Uh, so I, I, like I said, it's something I've, I've spent quite a bit of time with, I usually will focus more on this, particularly if the client has a history of uh, GERD, if they have some significant reflux issues, because there is some interesting research right now uh, that's showing that our diaphragm strengthening exercises, so a variety of respiratory drills, focusing on diaphragm strengthening and diaphragm mobility can reduce GERD. Um, So they're now talking about that some in in the GI world. So the combination of getting someone to chew more utilizing some behavioral approaches and then connecting that to, we're also going to be working your breathing. Um, I've had some success with that, but like, like so many things that we are dealing with as clinicians, it really is about ROI, right? Mm -hmm. Um, How much time 
Can we invest in this? Is it going to give the client the biggest benefit? Things like chewing, sleeping, these are strong, long-time habits that most people deal with. We all know that if they slept better, they probably feel better. If they chewed more, they probably feel better. Um, and if you can keep them as clients long enough to delve into those things, I think that's essential. Um, but I'm all, you know, this is one of those balancing acts of always, okay, what can I do in the immediate and what can we do long-term? It's, it's so interesting just to see how much something like just one thing like breathing and you can relate it back to, to so many different stuff. Now, now we've just delved into digestive issues, you know, mm -hmm. we can see how breath can affect that as well too. Um, on that note too, one of the most prevalent changes in the last year is the, the use of, of masks. So wearing masks, <laughs> it, it doesn't suffocate anybody. We know that, but it does <laughs> significantly change the way that we respirate. I've noticed mm -hmm. on myself, I don't know, I haven't seen any research like this, that I tend to catch myself mouth breathing a, a lot more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously nostril breathing is correct. I don't know if it's maybe the, the tactile sensation on the lips with this primitive like suckling reflex and it makes me mm -hmm. kind of open my mouth, but how are you seeing uh, uh, mask wearing affecting you know, people's breathing and has that modified anything that you've, uh, you've been implementing with your clients, with your breathing training? Yeah, so great, great question, particularly considering our last year. Um, there were a couple of studies that came out, I think one was from Korea, one was from China, and we were seeing people with prolonged mask use suffering hyperventilation. Um, at a very basic level, anytime we restrict your habitual intake capacity, the brain is gonna drive you to increase that intake, right? So let's say, uh, particularly you're double masking, all of a sudden um, we are getting some biochemistry changes. So normally what I've seen is that as people use masks, they, yes, it alters their breathing pattern, number one, because they feel weird. Uh, but number two, I tend to see people moving into more hyperventilated states. So increased breathing rates. I did an Instagram post, I don't know, six months ago or something after one of these studies. Uh, and what they were recommending for healthcare practitioners in that country was every, you know, every two hours, at least you need to get the mask off, be somewhere to breathe freely for 20 minutes. Right. Um, that was generally helping keep some of the tension pain issues at bay. So everything we've been discussing with regards to like the pain relief breathing, making sure that we get some long exhalation focus, um, I think is very important. The other thing that I don't know that many people recognize is that mask wearing, particularly if you are in an environment which requires a high energy output for many people is going to become problematic. Um, so you will, I have seen, and you will see pretty significant increases in fatigue, uh, from prolonged mask use. It's kind of like the training masks, right? If, if people, yeah. athletes are wearing a training mask, great tool, but at some point, um, people have to recognize if you're wearing that, it's going to prevent you from reaching maximal output just because it's restricting your basic fuel supply. So you've got to figure out how to implement that in a training program. So with, prolonged mask use, as I said, I think it's more important than ever before to make sure that you're doing some kind of intentional rehab work throughout the day. Yeah. I think more, more of a call for breathing training than anything now with, yeah. with uh, mask wearing. So yeah. Um, just being aware. You mentioned, uh, you know, a, a 
particular device there with uh, some of the training masks. Um, you're a big fan of, of trying out different devices. There's, there's several mm-hmm. um, uh, respiratory devices out there as well, too. Mm-hmm. Um, what, are some, what are some of uh, your favorite ones? Great. So I have uh, a lot. <laughs> there is, I'm all... I, I, I should tell everyone, I know the answer because there is a list of a lot of the products that are used. <laughs> so if, use. yeah. like, if you don't catch it now, you can definitely go to zhealtheducation.com and you, know, you recommend all the stuff that you use yourself and use in your classes yeah. as well too. So I do. So the, the number one thing I was trying to tell people about breathing equipment is you have to understand what's the job of this particular device, right? I see a lot of people misusing them and thinking that, well, I tried a breathing device and it didn't really work for me. Well, how are you using it? Did you get any instruction with it? And do you really understand the intent? So um, some of my favorites, uh, you mentioned Conscious Breathing by Anders Olsen. Um, he makes a little device called the Relaxator. Now, if you see this, it is a, it's a mouth, it's a device you hold in your mouth you basically have a dial that allows you to increase or decrease the difficulty of exhalation. So nasal inhale, mouth exhale. The reason I love it is because it's cheap and it's bright green. It's one of the, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, you cannot not see it when you're looking around your desk or get in your car. So I tell people it's one of my very favorite habit change tools. There's also a uh, lanyard you, too. There's a lanyard. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's it always around your neck. Yep. And it's also great as well because it's very comfortable, which allows you to do mobility work. Yeah. So I sometimes will wear it on the bike. Sometimes I'll use it whenever I'm going through some mobility work. I've even done strength training with it. Um, so it's, for me, like I said, it's a really nice reminder of what I want to be focused on. Nasal inhale, prolonged exhale, and I can add a little resistance to it. Um, as you then move from that, uh, one of the challenges, obviously, is I really like to have athletes do nasal inhale, nasal exhale whenever possible. So that is one of the main reasons I would recommend something like the training mask. Uh, these used to be called altitude training mask. They do not simulate the effect of altitude, should never have been called that in the first place. Um, but what they can allow you to do is increase resistance. So you can increase nasal resistance. Uh, and and, um, and it, again, I think most people are now comfortable or familiar with wearing masks. So I think it will lead you to increase CO2 levels to some degree particularly if you're wearing it during activity. So it's a kind of a cool rehab device. And you can obviously, if you have athletes, you can challenge them at a higher level for brief periods with that. Now, as you go more high tech, um, if you are really into feedback, I am really into feedback because I think people often improve faster whenever they're able to self monitor. Um, I, there's a great tool called the AeroFit. Uh, The AeroFit device is I think made in Sweden um, and it links to an app on your phone and it will take you through training regimens. You have inhalation and exhalation dials. So you can increase or decrease the difficulty. Uh, and it allows you to track your training sessions over time. So you can sort of look at how much force am I able to put into my inhales? How am I able to, how much force exhales? Uh, so I really have liked that one for, uh, ever since I got my first kind of uh, prototype of it several years ago. So that's a, a great one. Um, Another one that I've been experimenting with now for the last few months, uh, and it's not mentioned in the breathing gym because I've just started working with it, is uh, it's called Breathe Strong. And one of the doctors, uh, PhDs, who has spent, I think, done more to bring about um, kind of scientific rigor in looking at respiratory muscular strength training, particularly inspiratory muscle training. Uh, Her name is Allison McConnell. 
uh, from the UK and her company, they make a set, a very cool inhalation training device. It's not for exhale, but inhalation only, because most of the studies, particularly in athletes have looked at uh, inspiratory muscle strengthening, not expiratory, because traditionally the exhalation has been considered relatively passive. So when we're going to do strength work, they tend to focus more on inhalation. I'm not sure I completely agree with that. Obviously I don't, because uh, I like to have resistance both directions, but what they are now showing, they've developed a inspiratory muscle trainer that monitors your force production and alters the force production as your training session goes on. And that is, that's kind of the next evolution. I think that we're going to see across all the breathing devices, because when we look at some of the research on strengthening, uh, if I'm using an X, uh, let's say uh, AeroFit or expand along or one of these other strength training devices, Normally, we'll see strengthening of the diaphragm uh, from the inhalations, but as we, as the inhalation creeps up, because we're getting weaker and weaker, we don't actually see as much activation in uh, other portions, especially superior portions of the respiratory system. Mm -hmm. So this modulating resistance from the Breathe Strong device uh, helps counteract that. And so the the comparative studies that they've shown so far have been very interesting. So I'm currently experimenting with that one. Uh, and yeah, and they've shown some, they've shown some pretty good evidence that if you're familiar with pulmonary measures like force exploratory, uh, force exploratory volume, um, there's some pretty good evidence that people with asthma and other COPD, other breathing uh, deficits, we see physiologic changes in what would be traditional pulmonary measures whenever you use this kind of graded IMT. So, um, yeah, interesting stuff. Do you think, do you think the science is going to uh, evolve pretty quickly with, you know, obviously COVID being a respiratory, uh, uh, virus and uh, they have a lot of patients that are recovering mm -hmm. from this. And there's talk of a lot of, you know, uh, uh prolonged symptoms coming from that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they're going to have a lot of subjects to test a lot of this stuff on. I certainly hope so. Um, I, I get a lot of emails from our community about their, their clients. They're, you know, consider these long haulers and what kind of, what kind of tools they can implement from a breathing perspective. So yes, I think we're gonna have a, a large group. Uh, we just have to find enough people on the research side who are interested in pursuing the, the, right. the respiratory rehab component. Right. Do you think there's anything lacking right now? You know, just, just your own opinion, the stuff that you've read, you're, you're so thorough with your, your research. Is there any one thing that you're like, I'm surprised I haven't seen that in the research re with regards to breathing. Oh, there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> can of worms yeah. open. <laughs> yeah, huge can of worms open. Um, as I was mentioning earlier, the, the, like the study of the voluntary respiratory networks is almost brand new. Mm. Because if you think about most respiratory research, what was it done on? Well, it was done on rats and cats and primates. And the ability now to actually look at what human brains are doing when we say, I want you to breathe with this pattern. I want you to breathe with this pattern is very, very new. Um, and again, like so many, you know, I think it, it harkens back to what you were saying before. I don't know that breathing, particularly voluntary manipulation of breathing has been that much of that much interest to people, uh, particularly in the research side, because most of us think, Hey, we breathe. Okay. We've made it this far. So I think <laughs> they're, Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a tremendous amount still to be discovered about um, what do specific breathing patterns and specific breathing styles do neurologically. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. If you go into some of the, 
you know, there are a few, if you look into like the Indian, Indian medical journals, uh, because they have such a huge experience with yoga, there are some interesting studies where they've done some small scale, you know, functional MRI studies on people who are new to breathing, what happens after 12 weeks. There's been a few things showing up in the U.S. Um, and around the world. But yeah, right now, I, it's kind of, from my perspective, very much a new frontier. I'm very interested in, will we, right now, we have this kind of fairly comfortable pattern of five and a half to six breaths per minute, you know, for pain and for sympathetic tone reduction. I'm super curious. Well, if someone works on their voluntary breathing capacity uh, and they're able to extend their breath hold, what does that do in the brainstem? What does that do in the frontal lobe? What does that do in the parietal lobe? Um, some of the original, I think it has a huge implications for pain as well. Um, some of the very, very earliest information I saw about the, the midbrain and the sympathetic tone, um, there was a Dr. Paulus, uh, I believe it was at UCSD a number of years ago. Uh, they were trying to do some fMRI research looking at the brains of normal people versus elite athletes, right? And so for their elite athletes, they took professional triathletes, Ironman triathletes, and Navy SEALs. And then they took a, a control group of regular people and they put them in a functional MRI. Uh, and then they had them breathing through a tube and they gradually tightened down the tube. So less and less air was coming in. And so what they were curious about is how will these highly trained athletes who have experienced a lot of breathlessness respond compared to the control group? And this led to looking at the midbrain and also the insular cortex, because what they found was that the highly trained athletes and Navy SEALs, that whenever they weren't getting as much air as they were comfortable with, their brains didn't freak out. So in other words, they did not experience this vast overreaction to, okay, there's not enough air versus the kind of control population. So there is a, when we look at, as I said, where research needs to go, I think there's a lot of very fascinating things like that, because if we can understand that, uh, I think it helps us then begin figuring out how to bridge these gaps and bring appropriate breathing practices into training programs and into rehabilitation programs. Breathing obviously is one of our primary survival needs. So it is going to be deeply attached to emotion and fear and changes in movement patterns so I feel like the more we know about how to manipulate that consciously, the better we're going to be able to serve people. Yeah, it's one of those weird things too. Uh, we're practicing something consciously to be so much better at it unconsciously, you know, voluntary right. to drive involuntary. It's always mm -hmm. been very fascinating to see stuff like that as well too. So where can, let us know where everyone can, you know, find the breathing gym. Uh, let's talk about uh, some of the content that's out there and let's talk about mm -hmm. Z Health education a little bit. <laughs> Uh, so the breathing gym, you can just go to our website, zhealtheducation.com. It's in the product section. It is a, I think, I think it came in right at about three hours. So it's a studio presentation, um, demos, uh, PowerPoint and all the usual stuff that you get. It really, for me, was one of my favorite little projects to do because I personally have seen my own life and so many lives change through altering breathing practices. Uh, and what I really wanted to make sure um, I did in this program was I tend to be, I tell people I'm, I'm a technique agnostic, right? I, I don't, I don't believe anyone, including myself. <laughs> it's what can we see in the research? What does that mean? How can we interpret it? And how can we use this in an experiential way to improve people? So 
Um, I think it's, it's really balanced. Uh, I try to, you know, reference different groups that I think are doing great things in respiratory research. It's such a big field that I don't think anyone has all the answers because that's, that's the danger. Um, I try very hard in the, in this program to make sure that, you know, people understand I'm not married to any particular breathing technique or breathing tool. Um, you have to find what's appropriate and what works for you. So anyway, it's available on dhealtheducation.com. And what was your other question about Z Health in general? I was writing down uh, <laughs> technique agnostic. That is definitely going to be uh, a stolen, but you no, know, more specifically with uh, Z Health Education, you know, obviously everybody had to kind of change uh, things in the last year. Yeah. You went to primarily doing stuff online. You've always had coursework available online, like uh, uh, filming the the uh, semin- the live seminars, but you yeah. redid pretty much all your courses, I believe, in that studio. Um, yes. And then there's a lot more available now online. Um, follow up to that would be: Do you when do you see yourself going back to live courses? So right now we're well, yeah. I'll address the what we did first. Uh, it became pretty evident to us, I think, in late March that we were going to lose the year. Um, I was I was hopeful. I actually I do a lot of planning, and so I actually looked at one of the things I pulled up the other day. I'd done my uh, I called it COVID War Games. Uh, it was a, it was a break. It was a big mind map of, well, if we go back at this time, we go back at this time. And, uh, so we unfortunately all got smashed, uh, with the loss of an entire year of, of interaction, class interaction. So I tell people right now, I'm actually super thankful because COVID forced us to do in six months, what we had planned to do probably five years from now, mm-hmm. um, which was take our entire curriculum, film it in a really high end studio, uh, make sure it's on and, and we've transferred all of the certification processes online. So you take the full course, take your exams, uh, all that's available. And what we're doing this year to supplement that, because one of the issues with going online is I think people miss the personal connection. Yeah. So now what we're doing is every course uh, we're running throughout the year, what we call these intensive practical intensive. So basically case study um, seminars around each one of the courses in the curriculum and that's been going really well. And people are think are having a great time with that. So um, we're still, uh, we call that our online system is the health university. We're in the process of continually upgrading that. Um, so there's be some cool releases coming up. I think pretty soon, hopefully in the next couple of months, <laughs> uh, as far as going back live, we're actually in a lot of discussions about that in within in-house trying to figure out what makes sense. We are, the challenging aspect for us is we're not like a lot of companies where we do 10 and 15 people courses. Most of our courses are 50 to hundred people. Um, so the logistics in the current COVID environment are very, very challenging. Yeah. Um, we look, uh, because we, I, I live here in Vegas, we teach um, our courses here in Vegas at UNLV mm-hmm. and the, the primary area where we teach was closed completely. And then whenever we started talking to them about being able to come back, Um, A lot of governmental regulations. And then basically for like a 50 person class, we're going to have to have a 10,000 square foot auditorium, you know, because of the the codes. It was just, it was very weird. So my personal hope now that uh, we're into March of 2021, we see the vaccine rolling out, uh, vaccine rollout progressing rapidly. Um, There's some really interesting new therapeutics that are coming out as well. There's a couple of medications that they uh, seem very promising. There's some really cool nose sprays that seem to block COVID infections. 
Uh, there's a company in the UK that's trying to make them, and they're they're not a vaccine or anything. It's basically just a coating of the sinuses. So I think personally, um, the research I've been looking at, the couple of the drugs they think will probably be available by summer. The nose spray companies are also aiming towards summer. So I think by the end of this, I think by the end of summer, we'll all have a much better idea of what we can do, where we can do it, uh, and when. So. Um, we're, as I said, we're still in talks around all of it and seeing if we can find a way to intelligently blend what we have now online, uh, with maybe condensed versions of live training to prevent people from having to be together so long. So yeah. we're, we're just trying to evolve as uh, the virus and life is directing us. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree with you switching to teaching online. I don't know how you feel about it, but without the breakouts, you know, I'm more exhausted after a course because yeah. I'm talking much more and, you yeah. know, that's, that's not good for a lot of reasons, but, um, there is that, that connection. Yeah. But mm -hmm. having said that the, in the, the rigor of the courses that you guys have online is still up there too. uh, experiencing it myself. And if you want to get your certification through the online test, you have to get a hundred percent. So <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it is intense yeah. to say the yeah, least. We've, so. we've <laughs> yeah, we've always kind of made made that the target. Like, we want you to know this. Obviously, you can take it more than once, but we want sure, you to be able to yeah. know the material. Um, yeah. And yeah, the, I actually, we invested a ton of money uh, into these studio shoots, but we're really happy with how they came out. Uh, it looks because, great. It really does. Yeah. And, and for me as an instructor, one of the interesting things is I was personally able to go into a lot more detail on some things that I really oh, sure. enjoy teaching. Right. Uh, than I can in a in a hundred person class. So I actually feel like we were able to put a really high value certification online. That um, as I said, now we're trying to supplement with these practical intensives. We yeah. figured out on Zoom and uh, a couple of our other web uh, casting services how to do breakouts. So now we're doing these live intensives. Here's a case study, putting people in rooms, having them talk. So it's uh, we're trying to do do the best that we can. I just think everyone's yeah. suffering screen fatigue to some degree. Yeah, I, uh, I'm so thankful for the technology we have, but you're right. Yeah, we get fatigued a little bit with that too. So <laughs> definitely go check out uh, zhealth.education.com uh, zhealth I, 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 if I get it correctly, right? Um, nailed it. Nailed it, good. Because there's the university, and those, but it's all yeah. zhealth.education.com. <laughs> Uh, yeah. check out, uh, you know, I, I feel like this is always a fun thing for people to know, but you know, you're, you're very active on Instagram, uh, with Z health mm -hmm. education. You know, if someone, uh, makes a comment or even DMS the Z health page, who are they talking to? Are they talking to you? It's normally Micah, but okay. since she's my partner, yeah. I, she talks to me about a lot of them as well. <laughs> so there's always back and so, forth. <laughs> yeah. She's, uh, she's been managing it now for the last year. I do most of the content creation or I would say 99% of the content creation, um, and then she handles the typical day to day, but we always are discussing comments and questions as they come in, trying to figure out helpful ways to answer them. So, yeah, and and if you guys are looking into more uh, research, listeners, I should say, uh, if you're looking into more research, you know the Instagram page is great because you are putting up a number of different studies through the links mm -hmm. uh, on your profile, and honestly, it's it's helped me. Just I didn't know this study existed. So it's nice mm -hmm. to kind of have a resource like that, that I can go to pretty quickly. Best resource is Z health, uh, uh, Z university at, uh, uh Z That's where you can pick up the breathing gym. There's also the vision gym, there's balance gym and a strength gym still out there. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Correct. So yep. there is a lot of great content there uh, amongst all of the other foundational courses uh, are through all the different phases that you can check out on uh, Z health. 
Uh, Eric, thank you so much. You know, I always love having a long conversation with you about all this stuff anyway. So uh, thank you so much for, for the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for the invitation. It was fun. Oh, 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 oh,